0: Let's get started for today. Um, years ago, I managed uh, a bunch of properties. Uh, well, I managed most properties in South Kansas City until fairly recently, but um, I had this one property in Grandview. That Years ago, we uh, the sewers clogged up, and so we uh, called a rooter company, had them come out, and they could not get their um, snake to go more than two or three feet. And so we figured we knew exactly where the problem was, and uh, and we dug down. The clean-out was Newer PVC, so we were uh, expecting a PVC line, got pretty surprised when we found an old clay sewer line. If you don't know what that is, just imagine flower pots, about three-foot flower pots, linked together end-to-end. They're flared on one end, so you can slide a pipe inside of them, and you just keep linking them together until you get a whole sewer line. That's what they used to use. And the problem with these is they don't actually seal together. They just kind of gravity feed downhill, and so you would just lock them in. And that means that tree roots, uh, over time when they're seeking water would, would find those little seams in the clay pipe and they would go in to get water out of the sewer and, uh, and they would clog up your line. Well, we got down to the main line on this old clean out and, uh, and we found our very first junction between these clay pipes and, uh, and it was all the way shut with tree roots. And so we tore it out, replaced a little chunk of PVC, hoping that that would fix the problem, and it didn't. So we had to dig three more feet, tree roots, all the way closed down again. So we uh, continued to dig and dig and dig until we had torn the entire sewer line out of this front yard and replaced it. Three very messy and disgusting and cold, because it was the middle of winter, days later we had finally had the entire sewer line replaced all the way to the city main, And to this day, anytime my sons and I sit around and talk about worst jobs ever, um, they bring up this job because this was absolutely disgusting. But this is kind of a universal story with remodeling. Um, It makes it very exciting, but also very challenging, is that you simply do not know what you're going to run into until you tear things apart, until you really dive in, you don't you don't know what you're going to find. And design shows kind of survive on this. Um, they all have this moment somewhere between commercial breaks one and three where uh, where they tear into a wall and they find something they weren't expecting. They find out this beam couldn't be moved. It's, or this wall was load-bearing or the sewer line has to be replaced and that wasn't in the budget. And it always comes with the really uh, intense camera shot of the grumpy homeowner or the, the super nervous uh, designer you know, that they have to bring this bad news um, to the people, but it's always a surprise. There's always this one um, surprise. It usually comes with dramatic music on a design show, but um, there's always that moment that you just don't know what you're going to get until you're into it. You can make all the plans you want, but until you tear things apart, you don't know what you're going to run into. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's. What happened to us in Grandview, and there was a moment, um, you know, that you, you realize just how bad things have gotten when you've got your arm all the way into a sewer line and someone uphill of you flushes. Oh. That actually happened to my oldest son, and uh, he still hates me from the, for that. Like, he's he doesn't like getting dirty anyway, let alone sewer dirty, and he was reaching into the main line to make sure it was clean, and somebody uphill did something, and it just washed over his arm. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I hope he's watching, because if, if so, I'm glad he's not in the room, because that story always comes with foul language. But, um, bottom line is, things never go smoothly. It just doesn't happen. And in remodeling, it's to be expected, but oftentimes when we're in the work of God, when we're doing things for God, it comes with a little bit of a surprise, because usually we feel like if it's God, it should go smoothly. Like, if, if we're doing what God tells us to do, why wouldn't it work? He's God. He's all powerful. It feels like if it's the work of God, it should go smoothly. Except most of us have been around long enough to know that's usually not the case. Um, and this morning in our text, the Israelites hit their very first snag in this process um, of rebuilding the wall. If you're in the room, since we don't have slides, I'm in Nehemiah 4. If you've got your Bible, you can get that out. If, you, uh, if, you, if not, you can open your app. Um, and in a day like this, you can even play Candy Crush and pretend like you're reading your Bible. And uh, I would never know. So, um, so I'm in Nehemiah 4, just if you want to follow with me. I like to read if you're on an app and you can change uh, translations. I read in the New Living Translation if you want to switch translations to match me real quick. But here's how it reads. sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stone from a rubbish heap and a charred one at that? Tobiah, the Amorite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captive in the foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger in front of the builders. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Amorites and the Ashadites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to rebuild or to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying before they know what happened, what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords and spears and bows. Then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we uh, knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears and shields and bows and coats of mail. And the leaders stationed themselves behind the people of the Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and the other hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeters stayed with them to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and the people, the work is very spread out and we are wildly or widely separated from each other on the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet... Rush to what, wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late, from sunrise to sunset, and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside the wall to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with the guard, with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I, nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor my guards who were with me, ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. This is the word of the Lord. I kind of resonated with part of that last line. Every single time uh, Esther has ever gone out of town, I've basically um, just slept in my clothes. Like if she's not there, I'm the world's biggest like slob. She left for Florida when her aunt died, and I think I went three days without taking my boots off. I just fell on top of the bed, slept, and got up and went back at it the next day. So I totally resonate with Nehemiah. We're in week five of our Fixer Upper series, and this is where things start to heat up. As far as 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 most of the drama so far, it's all been internal. Nehemiah hears that Jerusalem lays in ruins, and he laments and fasts and prays. After receiving permission and provision from the king, he rides to the city and looks at the damage, he examines the devastation firsthand. He challenges the leaders to rebuild with him. Last week we watched them actually get to work on putting up the walls uh, and then make the choices on where to block things out and where to let things in. Each family started with the wall right outside of his own house. And as we've responded to each of these messages, the primary focus has been internal. We search our own hearts to find our part in the brokenness. We repent. We reach out and pray that God would free us from the fear and anxiety that's being leveraged against us today in our society. We took time to fix our eyes on the cross, the grace and provision of God to do the work that he's called us to do. And then I challenge you to engage in the real and conscious process of binding and loosing, to decide what you should let into your life and what you should block out, refusing to just let those decisions be made for you by society. So most of what we've done has been internal. It's been in our own hearts and lives. And this week we actually turn outward. In fact, this week marks the first real conflict that Nehemiah has faced in his remodel project. Up until now, everything's gone really, really well. Nehemiah, you know, has had pretty smooth sailing. As far as we know, he got no pushback from the king. When he asked to to be released to go do this work and ask for provision, the king went along with it. He had no trouble with the leaders of Jerusalem, the leaders of Israel. The workers seemed to jump right in and do the work. Nehemiah's had it easy up to this point, which is the way it usually goes. Have you ever noticed when you do something for God that the, the beginning of it always goes really smooth? Like the beginning is always really encouraging. And you kind of dive in and like, like, God is so behind this, everything. Until you're so far in, you can't really get back out. And that's when the problems always start, when you when you've really dive in and find your first conflict. You're usually too far in to quit. You hit resistance. And we read this morning that Nehemiah and the people of Israel were about halfway through with the project when everything kind of went south, when they first hit resistance. It reads like this. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. The reason I think that this progress marker is here in verse six is is important is because uh, this is a huge feat to get, you know, that big of a wall halfway built. And yet it is completely and utterly meaningless. Like half a wall is basically no wall at all. Like they put in all this work. And and really, your wall is designed to reject enemy attacks. And so, basically, a six-foot privacy fence is meaningless against real enemies. And so, uh, he kind of puts this mark, when we hit our conflict, the wall was halfway up, because everybody was really enthusiastic. And, and, and yet, half a wall is no wall. It's kind of like wearing a seatbelt in a Prius, like... You know, and you're like, Dude, if I get erect, do I really want to be stuck in this tin can? Like, maybe the seatbelt's not the best, maybe not the best example. But having half a wall is basically no protection whatsoever. You've not really accomplished anything useful. So Nehemiah and the Israelites are in too deep to turn back when they hit resistance. And for the rest of this morning, I think I just want to res- look at how- kind of the nature and response uh, to that resistance. And this chapter is... Really, really rich. Um, I'm going to kind of go old school. And we're just going to work through this um, verse by verse. So if you have your Bible, it's a good week to leave it open because we're just going to kind of work down it. Normally, I kind of go on little historical and theological tangents in my sermons. But this this chapter has got too much. And so we're just going to kind of work down it and uh, and pull some stuff out as we work straight through the chapter. So if you are following along again, Nehemiah 4. Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall, he flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and officers, why does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews, or what do they think they're doing? So Nehemiah gives us a couple interesting details here in the very beginning that are almost comic when you really think about them. He says, Sanballat flew into a rage, like a big rage, and what did he do with that rage? He mocked them. He like made fun of them. Like, you know, it's like, anybody ever heard the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, well, if you've ever heard that saying and said it, I hope you know that's an absolute lie. I mean, our world is devastated by words. Words do more damage. Uh, Sticks and stones are much easier to heal from than words. But Nehemiah's description of this resistance is, is seems crazy that all he says is they got, they flew into a rage and made fun of us. Um, Until you look at the nature of kind of, persecution that we face today because we might click our tongues at Nehemiah and go, man a little who, who's going to get upset about a little mockery, a little teasing?" But think about America today. We, uh, we're allowed to believe as we wish, worship as we wish. We can shop wherever we want. we can gather together with our faith communities, we can vote. we get to write off our donations to the church. We still hold the majority position in our nation if barely, and for the most part, we're still the, the privileged belief system in our country. And so what does persecution look like to us? What form does it take? I mean, for the most part, the media makes fun of us. Celebrities tell us we're sexually repressed. They accuse us of oppressing women and hating gays. Scientists tell us we're wrong. Archaeologists tell us our, our text is nothing special. It seems no matter where we turn today, somebody is mocking us as believers. They don't stop making fun of us. And so we might act like Nehemiah wasn't facing anything real, just mockery. But this has been the way of the church forever. Nehemiah even explains to us why it bugs him so much. He mentions two groups of people in the audience that worry him. In verse 2 he says that Sanballat mocked the Jews in front of the Samaritan army officers. That's kind of important because these guys are the guys that have Artaxerxes' ears. These are, these are the, the guys that, that answer back to the king. And so mocking the Jews in front of these official people kind of matters. And then in verse 4, while he's praying, he says that they say it in front of the builders, that the builders can hear. This is the, these are the people that he's trying to keep motivated. These are the people that he's trying to keep encouraged. So suddenly mockery is a little more sinister than just making fun of Nehemiah. And I sense that it's usually that way with us. We, we don't mind being made fun of for our faith. That's kind of the easy part. It's when our leaders start buying into that. It's when our children start buying into that. It. It's when the people we're trying to motivate and reach out to start buying that message. And it's when the people who are making our laws start buying that message. It gets way scarier. Suddenly words will never hurt me doesn't look the same. And if these issues that Nehemiah is facing don't resonate with us, let's keep reading. Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stone and of this stone and rubbish heap? I love this. Preachers like me stand up every day. Or every Sunday at least, all over the world, and we talk about Jesus. We talk about the cross. We talk about this great sacrifice where God so loved the world He sacrificed His only Son. And we come back to it every week about the power of this sacrifice that, that Jesus made for us. And, and every once in a while, it creeps into our mind, what, what difference can we really make? What difference can, can a couple people gathering to talk about this sacrifice Really, make? What can we do? What good does remembering the sacrifice of Jesus do against the nuts and bolts, the stone and mortar that our world is really facing? Nehemiah's persecutors asked the same question What do you think you can do by offering sacrifices? This seems like a reasonable question. Until we look back through history at The kingdoms and the schools and the hospitals and the missions and the legal systems and the life-saving organizations that have been built by people who spend their time in worship of a Savior who sacrificed Himself. The majority of the good that's been done in this world has been done because people gathered around, they trusted in the power of a sacrifice. But the mockery was the same for Nehemiah. But Nehemiah responds to it. In a way that I think we really need to hold on to today. He posted it on Facebook. No, I'm kidding. No, he prayed. He prayed. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads. May they themselves become captive in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. Nehemiah didn't engage Sanballat. He didn't yell at the builders to stop literally listening to the rhetoric. He didn't even stick his fingers in his ears and go, la, 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 la. Nehemiah prayed. And I love his prayer because you can see a glimpse of the bigger picture in it. Nehemiah says, may their scoffing fallbacks on their own heads. I love this because this is most likely motivated by Esther's story. If you don't know Esther's story, I, I suggest you read it. It's an amazing story. But the short version is this guy named Haman had made a deal, kind of a sneaky deal, to get the king to kill all the Jews. And Esther, this brave girl who kind of found herself in an important spot, went to the king and she managed to turn things so that the only people who died on Haman's gallows were Haman and his family. And this happened about 30 years before Nehemiah's story. So Esther, before she went into the king, asked all of Israel to fast and pray for her. Nehemiah might have been one of those people fasting and praying for for Esther. We don't really know how old Nehemiah is here. But if he wasn't, he certainly grew up with the story of of the Savior, Queen Esther, who saved the Jews. So when Nehemiah prays that the scoffing of the enemy turned back on them, he's most likely referring to, to Esther, how Esther made Haman's gallows turn back on him. But what I love is it shows that, Nehemiah is both living in the story of God, a story that we're talking about and studying today, while he's also looking back at the story of God. It's much like the way we live. And the problem is we have a tendency to only focus on looking back at the story of God, forgetting that we are also living in the story of God. Nehemiah didn't know we'd be here, you know, whatever, 2,500 years later. Studying his story. All he knew is he was living in the story of God while looking back at what God has done in the past. And we have to live the same way. The the project of rebuilding that we're engaged in is no different than the project that Nehemiah was engaged in. We experience the story of God as we look back at the story of God. But Nehemiah faces his persecution with prayer. He doesn't engage it or combat it or comment on it or retweet it with a rebuttal. He prays. And I honestly think if we could get that skill alone, we'd be an unstoppable force. Well, right after recording his prayer, Nehemiah drops this line. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city for the people had worked with enthusiasm. This is like one of those famous last words in every movie, you know, where somebody says something like, uh, you know, we're about halfway and 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 everything's great. And you just know things are about to fall apart because they just told you everything was great. That's kind of this. You expect the music to change the second Nehemiah says this. We hit the halfway point because everybody was in good spirits. Dun, dun, dun. Like you know what's coming. Then Nehemiah gives a list of the people who were joining with his persecutors and how they were all suddenly against him. started out with Sambalot and Tobiah in the beginning. Now he says in verses 7 and 8, he says Sambalot and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites... All of them were suddenly against them. And it can feel like that sometimes. Like we know the people who will never like us. You know We know there are some people who just aren't ever going to like us, and that's fine. And every once in a while it seems like their team just keeps growing and growing and growing. Like everyone is set against us. So surely this time Nehemiah has had enough, right? Surely this time he'll hit social media. This time he'll defend himself. This time he'll, he'll make a really good post or a really good comment. I mean, the things people are saying about him, God cannot accept it. expect him to just sit back and take it. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Nehemiah responded to this greater threat, this, this, this increase in the enemy's army, the same way he responded to the previous threat, with one major difference. Look at what Nehemiah says in verse 4. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. Now listen to verse 9. Verse 4 said, then I prayed, hear us, O God. Verse 9 says, then we prayed to our God. When our enemy multiplies his forces, we multiply our forces. When Nehemiah first prayed, he prayed alone. The second time he prayed, he said, we prayed. Same defenses... Just more. And this is why we pray together. Some people think sharing our prayer requests and asking people to pray for us is just kind of a silly Christian ritual or maybe even sanctified gossip. But I personally think shared prayer is very, very serious. Because just like the enemy's meaningless mockery can have serious and detrimental effects on our heart. Having other people join us in prayer can bolster and encourage us in very real and tangible ways. So when the attack gets serious, we get people to pray with us. To pray with us. We never forsake that. But then the other shoe drops. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall By ourselves. This is huge. Notice what happens here. In case you haven't noticed so far, the enemy has done nothing in terms of real resistance to the work. So far, the enemy has done nothing except words. Words. Like they haven't. They haven't sent one soldier. They haven't attacked one person. All they've done so far is threaten. And you would say that they've done nothing. That they're. They've been powerless. Except, it's working. Because now the Jews are starting to believe it. These are the people of Judah. These are the people rebuilding the wall. That said, we can't do this work. This is too big for us. What difference could we possibly make? This is basically the exact same thing the enemy was saying in the beginning. Words can never hurt me? Really? Really? And I don't do this often, but I feel like I need to. I feel like we need to give some serious thought to the things that we watch and read and listen to. We talked last week about engaging the process of putting up walls and opening up gates. And I'm not going to be legalistic and tell you what to do, but if you think you can listen to certain messages over and over and over again, and those messages not affect your thinking, I think you're being naive. I think the messages we listen to in this story at the beginning, the enemy is saying, you can't do it. We're going to attack you. You're you're not strong enough. There's nothing you feeble Jews think you're going to build something. And they're kicking butt. They got the wall halfway up and suddenly they've listened to that message so many times. The Jews themselves start going, there's no way we can do this. This is too much for us. What good can we do against all of this? The Jews are killing it at the beginning of the chapter. When you finish chapter 3, you assume they are just rocking this wall. And they were. But suddenly, the empty chatter of some people with a different agenda made its way in. And the Jews start believing it. And it actually gets worse. The Jews who live near the enemy came to us and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. And tell me that doesn't sound like it's straight out of our own lives. What starts as the enemy's message starts to affect our outlook. And the next thing you know, it's the people who are on your team who are telling you that. It's the people who are supposed to love you. They're supposed to support you who are suddenly the ones telling you the enemy is, a, is against you and he's going to come and attack you. And, and suddenly the people that we're supposed to trust are carrying the enemy's message for him. And it starts to affect our outlook. You're trying to accomplish the work God has for you to rebuild your life according to His plan and His grace. And you expect the enemy's resistance, but suddenly your own team starts to tell you that you don't stand a chance or you're doing it wrong. Or... Has anyone ever experienced this? Am I the only one that's... No. Well, Nehemiah's finally had enough. So I placed an armed guard, but... Behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords and spears and bows. This verse has actually, be, actually been driving my life for a few months now. Nehemiah sets the guard where the wall is the lowest. He defends the weakest places in the wall. Every week over the past few months we've been praying for our youth, for our teenagers. During prayers of the people. And I was motivated by the fact that we kept getting call after call and having conversation after conversation about how our young people are getting their butts kicked by the enemy. And I felt like God called me to this verse and said, when you find a low spot in the wall, you have two jobs. You've got to defend it and you've got to rebuild it. And rebuilding takes time. So we have to defend it. So that's what we've been doing in prayer. We've been gathering together every week to pray for this hole in our wall. Where our young people are getting beat up. And this is exactly what Nehemiah did. He set his defenses where things were the weakest. While he takes stop. Then I looked over the situation. I called together the nobles and the rest of the people. And I said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. That's in verse 14. Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord. I honestly think that the key to mastering our fears and anxieties, especially the ones that are just kind of driving our world right now, are right here in this verse. Because frankly, your problems are too big for you. Any one of us could sit down and make a list of the things that we should probably be worried about. And the areas that where we really could be doing a better job. We aren't holy enough. We aren't healthy enough. We aren't saving enough. We aren't safe enough. We aren't doing enough. We are not enough. And if you focus on the size of your list, if you let the enemy hold that list up in front of your face every single day, if you think about it, if that's all you think about, it's just too much. I mean, none of us get out of this life alive. So, like, it's too much. It will eventually kill you. As far as life is concerned, the list wins. But, Nehemiah says, remember the Lord. When you remember the Lord, you remember that it doesn't matter if I'm holy enough, because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. It doesn't matter if I'm healthy enough because I worship the healer. It doesn't matter if if I've saved enough because He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the earth and the fullness thereof. It doesn't matter if I do enough because the entire New Testament seems to say over and over again it doesn't matter what you do. You don't get saved by what you do. You don't have to be enough because Jesus is enough. And as far as none of us getting out of this life alive, that's not altogether true because we worship the one who conquered death. I do not care how big your list is. When you open your eyes and you put them on God, your problems shrink. They just do. Nehemiah says, hey, ignore the enemy. Look at God. Ignore all the things they're saying. Ignore all the things that are beating you up on your list. Ignore all the threats that are coming at you and all the fears and anxieties. Look at God. Now, notice what Nehemiah does once he resists the enemy's vision and puts his sights back on God. He tells them to fight for someone else. Fight for your brothers and sisters, your families. When you're being driven by fear, Your eyes are on yourself, generally. When you realize that God has you in the palm of his incredibly capable hands, you're in a position to be used to help others. Once you take your eyes off of you and put them on God, you're now available to be used to defend other people. So Israel takes a defensive posture, but I believe the way they do it has a lot to say to us. Verse 16, but from then on, only half of my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah. Notice that they had workers and they had defenders. This is an aspect of church that I desperately feel we need to fix and get right today. Because we also have two groups, which is generally producers and consumers and this isn't anybody's fault, this is just as much the producer's faults as the consumer's faults. But most people, when they talk about church, when you ask your average person surveyed on the street today, what do you like about church? They all respond in consumer language. They offer me this, they offer me that, they give me this, they provide that. I don't think it's always been this way. I don't feel like it's supposed to be this way. See, our enemy is not people. The the one throwing threats and things at us is not people. Not even the people on Facebook mocking our faith. People are our our work. They're our mission field. They're, They're the ones we're supposed to serve. They're our customer. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. It's powerful systems and agendas and spiritual forces. And they have a tendency to kick our butts because no one's defending us. And just like our enemies aren't flesh and blood, our weapons aren't swords and spears and bows. Our weapon is prayer. And we need warriors. Not everyone can work. Not everyone has time to work. Not everyone has the exact right gifts to to work on the wall. Not everyone is in a season of life where they can build and work on the wall. But if you aren't working, grab a weapon and fight. Defend us. If you're a worker, work with one hand and fight with the other. That's what Nehemiah says. Uh, those who are building, uh, the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and the one hand holding a weapon. So if you're working, you still need to pray. But if you aren't working right now, that doesn't mean you do not have a part. It doesn't mean there's nothing for you to do. We need you now more than ever to pray. This is not a drill and this is not just frivolous talk frivolous request. Pray, pray, pray. We need prayer. If you're old, pray. If you're young, pray. If you have kids and you're too busy to dive into the work right now, teach your kids to pray. I think the prayer of children is crazy powerful. Give that kid a sword and a spear. We need praying people. So how do we respond to this? That sewer job I did in Grandview, if I had had any idea what was coming, I never would have even started. I would have hired that done in a second. We thought the problem was three feet away. We thought the problem was as, as far in as that guy could get his snake. If I'd known over 50 feet of sewer pipe, six to eight feet underground was my future, I never would have dove in. But when we got done, that house had a brand new sewer line, never had another sewer issue again. As we look at the state of the world, many of us realize that we didn't sign on for this. This is not what we wanted from 2020. But we're in it now, and we have to rebuild it. We have to defend each other. Nehemiah closes this chapter with what I consider to be a stroke of genius. And I would love for it to be the way we respond to this message. Then I explain to the nobles... And officials, and all the people. The work is very spread out. We are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet, rush to whatever, wherever it is sounding, then our God will fight for us. Nehemiah said, trumpeters. Trumpeters? Is that what a trumpet player is? A trumpeteer? What is a trumpeter? I don't know. He took advantage of the technology available to him to keep his people connected even when they were separated. Because here's the deal. The, the reason the trumpet is powerful is not because of the way it gathers people. You would think that it, it, that's what makes the trumpeter work is that he can gather all the people together. But the real reason the trumpet is powerful is because everyone gets to work knowing the trumpeter can gather The people. We say every week, you have a people. We remind you over and over and over again, you have a people. We pray every week that our kids would never know a day that they don't feel part of the people of God. These aren't just cute catchphrases. Because, see, you don't need your people standing right next to you every single day as you live. In fact, that's a terrible way to get anything done. We need to spread out along the wall to get the work done. But, you do need to know that your people are one trumpet blast away. Imagine you're working on the wall in Jerusalem, and you've been hearing about this pending enemy attack, and you look down the wall one way and you can't see anybody. And you look down the wall the other way, and you might see some movement, but not enough to give any security. And then you look out over the wall, this short six-foot meaningless wall, And everything looks like good cover for an enemy. Every tree and every boulder and every every spot looks like a spot where an enemy could hide until he attacks. And you want to work, but you're afraid to even look down. You're afraid to even turn your back because you feel alone. Now imagine that exact same scene with a trumpeter, if that's the word, standing next to you. Eyes open and watchful. Trumpet at the ready for the slightest sign of danger. It's just the, the safety of knowing my people will be here if I need them. The second he blows that trumpet, I am no longer alone. What's important is that we know we have a people ready to come to our defense the second they're needed. Today we don't have many trumpeters in the church, thankfully. But we do have texting, we have email, we have multiple forms of messaging, all of which are way easier on the ears. Nehemiah was creative about making sure his people stayed connected. We have to be the same. So the way I would love to respond to this message is to reach out, even today. Even right now, reach out and take care of each other. Send a text, send an email, make a call. Above all, pray. A lot of us run into issues all the time where the enemy's picking on us and mocking us and beating us up, and we, we don't text it or send it out because you know, we're kind of saving that for the big prayers, right? Somebody's got cancer. like We, we save our prayer requests for when it's, when it's big, I don't think that's the way to do it. I think we just stay in contact and make sure they know. We blow that trumpet. I'm being attacked today. I just need you to pray for me. I need to know my people are out there. I need to know somebody's covering me. We need to pray for each other. So the way I'd love to respond to this message is to reach out and take care of each other. That's how we fight our battles, through prayer. We pray for each other. I don't care if you see a prayer request on Facebook or you hear about it during prayers of the people or a friend or calls you. When you hear the trumpet, you come running. You need to fight. So this is a call to prayer. That's what this is today. We really need to pray for each other. The enemy is threatening all over the place and if we're not careful, we'll start to believe it and carry his message for him. We'll take our eyes off of how amazing our God is and how much... He can do as we focus on this beautiful sacrifice that our enemy makes fun of. And we'll give up on the great work that he's called us to do. And we simply cannot do that. The world needs us. So we need to pray. We need to fight for each other. So what I want to do is I want to pray for prayer. Or maybe I need to pray for more prayer. But I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit starts to pester us and pick on us. Until we pray. And if you're not used to praying. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit teach you to pray. Because it does absolutely no good. To complain about the state of our world. If we're not fighting. To make it better. And prayer is how we do that. We have a tendency to. Turn. Christianity. Into like a. A mental belief system like a world view like a, if you're a Christian it means you believe this list of things or we turn it into a behavioral system if you're a Christian you do or don't do these things I think prayer is when, when Christianity becomes like a relational life system When it's not so much about believing the exact right things like saying, you know, your multiplication tables. And it's not about, you know, doing this or don't doing that. It's about defending the people I love and and connecting with the God that I serve. I think prayer is what makes our faith a relational community system. So I'm asking you to pray with me. Let's do that now. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. I love that your disciples came to you one day and they recognized this connection you had to the Father and that it was different. And they said, man, teach us to pray. And you gave us a great outline that we can start from. Draw us back to that. Because we need to be fighting for one another. Pick on us. Holy Spirit, dig into us throughout the day and, and remind us that it's been a while since we've prayed. It's, it's important. If our words are clumsy and we're fumbling around because we don't know how to talk to you, we don't really know, and it feels weird, Teach us, comfort us, lead us, guide us into prayer. Challenge us to share our needs with others, to blow the trumpet when we need help. We have so much technology at our disposal. There's no reason we should struggle through our days alone. Help us know we have a people who will come running the second we blow the trumpet. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you in today to do a work in our hearts, to connect us to the body, to challenge us to pray for one another, to fight for one another. So that we can rebuild this world, so that we can advance the kingdom of God, so we can do the work you've called us to do. We cannot do it alone, and prayer is how we connect to do that work. So for everybody stuck at home, whether it's because of the coronavirus or their station in life right now, their season in life, God, I pray that you would just, in this moment, let them feel their value. Let them feel how desperately we need them to be praying for us. We can't do this without prayer, God, without you. Nehemiah said when when you blow that trumpet, everybody will come running and God will fight for us. That's what we seek. We blow the trumpet so that people will pray so that you will fight for us. Because this work is too big for us. We need you to help do it.